We read the Word of God tonight in Genesis 49. We'll read the first 28 verses. Genesis 49, 1 through 28. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together, and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou it, he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as an old lion, Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for an haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. Issachar is a strong ass, couching down between two burdens, and he saw that rest was good, and the land that it was pleasant, and bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant unto tribute. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path, that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Out of Asher his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a hind let loose, he giveth goodly words. Joseph is a fruitful bow, even a fruitful bow by a well, whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him, but his bow abode in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by the God of thy father, who shall help thee, and by the Almighty, who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, Blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. 
They shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf, in the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is it that their father spake unto them and blessed them. Everyone according to his blessing, he blessed them. This far we read the word of God. I call your attention this evening to the tenth verse of Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. As the patriarch Jacob was on his deathbed, he gathered his twelve sons before him. It was a time when he didn't think he'd see all twelve of them again. But now he sees them, Joseph too, and before he dies, he blesses them. It was the custom in Old Testament Israel that the oldest son received both the birthright and, in the case in which it applied, the blessing. The birthright, which had two parts to it, a double portion of the inheritance that the father would give his children, and the right to rule the brethren. And then the blessing, that is, that the line leading from Abraham to the Messiah would continue through that son. I say it was the custom that the oldest child get these three, especially now in the case of that family that stood in the line leading to the Messiah. But you see that the oldest son, nor the second, nor the third oldest of Jacob, get any of these. To Judah is given one aspect of the birthright, that is the right to rule the brethren. And to Judah is given the promise that through him the Messiah will come. Both of those are found in our text. And to Joseph, the other part of the birthright blessing, the double portion of the inheritance. What we're reminded of in that God gives these gifts not to the first, second, or third, but part to the fourth and part to a much later son, is that even though, according to custom, they are given from father to son, the Lord sees to it that that man receives these blessings whom the Lord has raised up and prepared to receive them. We have the sovereignty of Jehovah here in the text. And the sovereignty of Jehovah in distributing the gifts that He will give at a place one has in the covenant a unique place in distinction from another is Jehovah's to give, and he does that here. He does it through Jacob, who speaks as a prophet. We read in the opening verses of the chapter, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Jacob is not just administering here or making known his last will and testament. He is rather giving a prophecy of the future. 
He is telling his sons what will befall them and the tribes that come from them in the latter days. It's very interesting and worthwhile then to compare the prophecies in this chapter with those that Moses gives the 12 tribes in Deuteronomy 33 before he dies and then trace the history of the tribes and see how those prophecies are fulfilled. But Jacob speaks not only as a prophet who tells the future. He speaks as a prophet of God, whose prophecies are always concerned with speaking of blessing, gracious, divinely bestowed blessing that comes on his people. And so, what we read in the chapter in verse 28, this is that that their father spake unto them and blessed them, everyone according to his blessing, he blessed them. It didn't always seem this way, but in every one of those blessings was a gracious, spiritual gift. But that comes out most clearly in the blessing that we consider this evening. This is at the very heart of all that Jacob spoke. Even though each tribe is distinguished in its own way, if there is not the promise found in our text, then there isn't really for Israel a promise of gracious blessing. But to Judah, this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him, shall the gathering of the people be. I call your attention to the text under the theme, Shiloh's coming out of royal Judah. Note first, Judah's gracious distinction. Second, Shiloh's wonderful appearing. And third, God's saving purpose. The place that Judah would have among the other sons of Jacob was not only unique, each of their places was unique to them, but it rose above any blessing that the others received. There are three ways in which the blessing pronounced upon Judah is a distinct blessing from that given to the other sons. In the first place, he's given that aspect of the birthright. He's given the right to rule his brethren, dominion over them. Judah the man and then Judah the tribe will have preeminence among the twelve of Israel and Jacob and will rule. That's the text. In the first place, as it speaks of the scepter that shall not depart from Judah, the symbol of royal authority and power. And in the second place, as it speaks of a lawgiver not departing from between his feet. That is now not the symbol or sign of the office of king, but the work that the king does, making laws. And especially, in light of the fact that ultimately the heavenly king, Jehovah, would give the laws, the earthly king would administer the laws that Jehovah gave. But not only is that the text, 
that Judah would be a royal tribe. That's also the context. That's the entire thought that ties together verses 8 through 12. You look at verse 8, which is a prophecy that Judah's hand will be in the neck of his enemies. He'll, he'll be a warrior and he'll have the victory. It's a king that leads to war. In verse 8, thy father's children shall bow down before thee. The other tribes, the other sons will acknowledge Judah's preeminence in this regard. In verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. He couched as a lion and is an old lion. And at the moment, the point is the figure of a lion, the king of beasts. And throughout Scripture, the lion of Judah's tribe is a depiction and a figure used to speak of Jesus Christ who would come. Verse 11 speaks of him washing his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes so that they are dyed red or purple royal apparel. And verse 12, the plenty and the riches and the abundance, his eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. The plenty and abundance that befits a king. That in the first place is the distinction given to Judah. He will rule his brethren. The second part of the distinction given to Judah is that out of Judah will come Shiloh. Here and only here in Scripture, the word Shiloh refers to the Messiah. The word is used a number of times in Scripture, especially with reference to a city in Israel, and a city where the tabernacle was pitched, and where Israel worshipped Jehovah for some time. But that city was in Ephraim, not in the area that would be given to Judah, and therefore it cannot be the reference here. The reference is to the Messiah. But that fits what we saw the first distinction to be. The right to rule the brethren will culminate in Judah being that one from whom the Messiah will come. As Judah ruled, and as the tribe of Judah ruled among the tribes, it would be evident that this tribe was the one distinguished by Jehovah so that the Messiah would come from her. The third part of the distinction is that from Judah, as he ruled, would come peace and harmony and covenantal rest for the people. That is the idea of Shiloh itself, the meaning of the word. Shiloh is a peacemaker. Judah would be the one making peace. Indeed, you ask yourself the question, why was there ever this custom in Old Testament times that when father died, one grown son of all grown sons will rule the sons? They're all grown men. What do they need a ruler for? And the answer is, because grown sons are prone to squabble, grown sons are prone to vie for preeminence, grown sons are prone to not be happy with the part of the inheritance they received, put a bunch of grown sons together, and our sinful nature shows itself in creating disharmony and destroying unity 
all in an effort to advance self. And God appointed that there be one who received the birthright, a brother who would rule the brothers, who if he carried out the work of his office well, and to God's glory, would work to unite the brothers and keep them in peace and in harmony. Did that always work in Israel? Certainly it did not always. But it will here. Judah will work for peace. Covenantal peace. And that because out of him will come Shiloh, the peacemaker, Jesus Christ. This is the distinction that's given to the prophet, or rather to the son Judah, by father Jacob speaking as a prophet. A while the Israelites' sons didn't know their future yet, the Holy Spirit gives this prophecy at this time, knowing the future. He's giving an encouragement. All of the blessings were meant to be an encouragement, but especially this distinction given to Judah, meant to be an encouragement to Judah, because soon and soon enough, the, the Israelites who already are in Egypt will come under bondage to the Egyptians. Soon, Satan will be working hard to destroy Israel. To make it impossible for the covenant promises to be fulfilled. To say and make it evident there is no peace and there is no unity among the Israelites because they do not exist. Satan's goal is to swallow them up in Egypt, and make them become the Egyptians. There is this word. A word from Jehovah. A word which when Jehovah speaks, he will see is carried out. And the word is this. There's a royal son among the twelve, a royal tribe among the twelve, a peacemaker among them all. There is hope. For Israel in Egypt's bondage. Shiloh will come. We trace the history of the Old Testament briefly to see how this aspect of the prophecy is fulfilled. In the wilderness, long before the twelve tribes are given the land in the land of Canaan, Judah leads the way. As the twelve tribes wander through the wilderness, Judah goes first. When they come into the promised land, Judah is the first to receive his inheritance. It is Judah who leads the way in destroying the Canaanites after Joshua dies and says to the tribes, you have more work to do. You're settled in the land now. But you need to destroy the Canaanites within your tribes. Judah does so. Not all of the other tribes. Most of the other tribes do not. And that leads to the terrible time of apostasy during the time of the judges. You see Judah being faithful. Even more clearly, the fulfillment of this prophecy comes into focus when God raises up David, a man after his own heart, and puts David on the throne of Israel. Saul was no peacemaker. 
Saul was not one who promoted covenantal unity and the uh, enjoying of covenantal rest in Israel, but David would in a unique way. One phrase of verse 8 is fulfilled in David. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. David was a warrior king. Even the Shiloh who comes must first war against the enemies of the covenant. And then, having won the victory, can make peace within the covenant. And so David, and Solomon who succeeds him, and Solomon even more is this Shiloh. The name Solomon means peace. But the fulfillment of the prophecy in David and Solomon, you well know, is typical and short-lived. For it was that peace-making Solomon who himself destroyed peace. When he worshipped idols, and when he married many heathen women, It was that peacemaking Solomon under whose kingship Israel, Old Testament Israel, reached the peak and pinnacle of its extent and influence who was the occasion from an earthly viewpoint for that glory to be lost. And yet, there's a glimmer of hope. After the kingdom is divided, the son of David still reigns on the throne in the southern kingdom. Even after the southern kingdom is taken captive and then returns, it is a man from Judah, Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Israel, not the king, but the governor. And yet we look for a final fulfillment, which we find in the birth of Jesus Christ. Later prophets of the coming of the Messiah would underscore that he would come from the house of David, Isaiah 9.6. He would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, Micah 5 verse 2. And when the fulfillment takes place, as you read of it in Luke 1, it's clear that he's born in Bethlehem in order to show that he is of David. And he identifies himself to John in Revelation 5 as the lion from Judah's It is Jesus Christ from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, who is the king of which the text is a prophecy. And the angels announce his birth in that light. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. It is being Christ, he is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. But what especially the angels proclaim and the shepherds understand is he is king. Judah and the Jews, who for many years did not have a king to rule over them, who are under, again, the control of another nation, not Egypt now, but Rome, are given the promise that a king has been born, and that king will give peace. He'll be a lawgiver, and that he will enforce and remind and teach the people of the law of Jehovah God. Won't give a law that's brand new to the Israelites, but a law that they've known all along. 
He'll be a lawgiver in a deeper sense. He will write that law on their hearts as he writes it on yours and mine. So he's a lawgiver in teaching God's law, but also in enabling and empowering us spiritually to love and to obey that law. He brings peace and rest because he died on the cross, taking the burden of sin upon himself, the great cause of enmity. And he atoned. He appeased the wrath of God fully and completely so that there can be no peace. Peace with God and peace with each other. And that's the great goal of his rule yet today. To gather a church, sinners who would be at enmity with God and us who would be at enmity with each other and to remove that enmity and cause us to live in peace, in harmony, and in fellowship. What a beautiful promise in our text. And you and I, and the church of Jesus Christ everywhere, are the heirs of it. It's worth noting in this connection that our text is the second clear and explicit prophecy of the coming of Christ in the book of Genesis. There are other hints, no doubt about it. But the first was Genesis 3 verse 15. And there the coming of the seed of the woman of Jesus Christ was spoken of entirely in terms of battle and war and enmity. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Enmity between the ungodly and the godly, the unbeliever and the believer, the elect on the one hand and the reprobate. But in the second, Jehovah is now addressing that one group that he has distinguished and called the seed of the woman and says, though there will be enmity between you and the others within you, is peace, harmony, and unity. What grace Jehovah shows to Judah Jacob gave a historical reason earlier in the chapter why he did not give these distinctions to Reuben, Simeon, or Levi. And the historical reason and occasion why he didn't had to do with the sins that they had committed. Reuben, thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou it. I'm not going to give you, the birthright or the blessing. Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitation. It was their idea to try to sell, uh, to, it was their idea to kill Joseph. And then they were instrumental in trying to convince Jacob that that's what ended up happening by killing a goat and soaking his coat of many colors in it and showing their father what they had found. I'm not going to give the birthright and the blessing to them. That's Jacob as a man, though. 
And if you think that when he gets to son number four, he says, now here's a son who's worthy of it, think again. You do full well the sins of Judah. Maybe by now he knows that Judah was the one who, though attempting to or going along with a plan not to kill Joseph, finds a way to sell him the Ishmaelites. But even more, Judah is the one who, ignoring his calling to train his sons to raise up seed to their brethren, himself goes in to a whore. In a marvelous way, through that sin, the line of the covenant leading to Christ is continued through Tamar. The point I'm making, though, is that Judah's sins are no less explicitly mentioned in Scripture than the sins of his older brothers. If you would keep going down the list, you would simply not find a brother who was worthy of the birthright and the blessing. For no human is. And that's where the grace of Jehovah comes out to sinners, unworthy and undeserving sinners. Jehovah says, I have grace. And what in Jacob's mind are historical occasions not to give the blessing and the birthright to sons one, two, and three are controlled by Jehovah's counsel and his will saying, Judah must have it. But in this love for Judah, in this distinction for Judah, every sinner finds hope. That is, every sinner who acknowledges that he needs the Shiloh who will come. Every sinner who acknowledges his sin and sees it for what it is to be sin against the Most High God. And every sinner looks at this promise and says, a lawgiver a scepter, a Shiloh who will come. There's hope for me also. Jehovah God is a gracious God. With that, we notice in the second place, Shiloh's wonderful appearing. Not only has Jehovah distinguished one tribe out of 12 then, but he speaks of a momentous occasion that is yet to come. And that is that this Shiloh who will come will have royal dominion forever. The eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is here promised. Especially the everlasting character of that kingdom is set forth in the text in two ways. A scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. That is, within the tribe there will always be the promise and the hint and the glimpse of the coming of Shiloh. It will never go away, this glimpse or hint, until Shiloh comes, shall not Depart, because Shiloh will reign forever. And the second point in the text that underscores that is that phrase, until Shiloh come. And especially the word until, which to you and to me might mean, well, when Shiloh comes, 
the promise is over. But which often in the Scriptures means, no, when Shiloh comes, the promise is fulfilled. That's true. But the blessings now continue forever and ever. Jehovah is not the kind of God who has a, a, a hobby. And He wants to carry that hobby through as far as He can to the very end. But once it's accomplished, once Shiloh has come, He says that was just a hobby. It was an interest of mine. It's finished now. It, I'll put it aside. No, He is the one who has one sovereign overarching purpose in all of history. To save a people. And when Shiloh comes, the people will be brought and especially at His second coming, to live with Shiloh and to live with Jehovah God in heaven forever and ever and ever. What does it say about Jesus Christ doctrinally? There's a couple points not to be overlooked here. Three things. In the first place, He's truly human. The one who is promised and the one who is our Savior is a man. He's going to come from the line of Judah. A man and a woman can produce only another human being and nothing else. But in the second place, if you study the characteristics of the human nature of Jesus Christ, you come across another one that's underscored here in the text. And it's one we don't think about often. It's the centrality of His human nature. There are five things that we set forth about the human nature of Jesus Christ when speaking of His incarnation. The first is the reality of it, and I've referred to that already. The second is the completeness of it, body and soul. The third is the fact that He comes in a weakened human nature. He comes under the curse. And the fourth is that He is the weakened sinless. So that He's the only one who's perfectly righteous and able to save from sin. And with those first four, you would say, I get them. I, I could even probably, if, if asked, and, and if I was given enough time, I could maybe come up with them. But there's a fifth. The centrality of His human nature. And by that is meant, that Jesus Christ arises from within the covenant of God and really from the very heart of the covenant. And that's what's being promised here. Shiloh will come out of Judah. Shiloh will come out of the line of David. When you look, Israel, for the one who is your Messiah, in other words, if off in China you hear of a man who seems to be a very good man, he seems to be able to do some marvelous things. He seems to be a man who has a special relationship with God, but he's off in China. You say he cannot be the one that has been promised, for this one will come out of the heart of the covenant itself. And if over in Egypt you were once told, forget about your hope, forget about your promises that you think your father gave you on his deathbed, we have people in Egypt who are as good as anyone in Israel. Look at what Pharaoh's magicians can do. 
then the Israelite says, no, no, I'm looking for one to come out of Israel and out of Judah as God has promised. There's an application of that point to us who live in the last days as we look for the return of Jesus Christ. Just because this man here says, Lo, I am Christ, or there that one says, Lo, I am Christ, the child of God says. I'm not looking anymore for Christ to come from below. He's going to come on the clouds of heaven, but even more. I'm going to be weary of any man who claims to be Christ, says he can do miracles, but who does not honor the word of God. And who in coming and promising to be king does not speak of a peace, a spiritual peace between me and my creator, savior, redeemer, but who's only interested in earthly things. The centrality of the mediator's nature, he comes out of the very heart of the covenant and the covenant line. And then, in the third place, what this is saying about Jesus Christ is that He is an eternal King. If He's an eternal King, He's an exclusive King. If He's an exclusive King, He's a complete King. He does all things necessary for our salvation. Begging this question, brothers and sisters in Christ, you acknowledge His rule over you and in you? Is the word tonight just a word for your head? For your heart and soul? Sinner that you and I are, do we bow before Him and say, Lord, what wilt Thou have me to do? Fulfillment of the prophecy demands the coming of Jesus Christ, the Shiloh. But there's also in the text a hint about the wonder of his appearing. That comes out in the word come. Until Shiloh come. The word is not until Shiloh is born. The word does not mean until Shiloh comes into existence. He doesn't exist now, but one day he will exist. The word, as used in the text, presupposes he already exists, but has not yet appeared. That's how we use the word too. In a few days, a few weeks, children, it'll be Christmas. And you might wonder on Christmas Day if the party is at your house, when will grandpa and grandma come? You don't mean when will they be born. You mean when will they arrive? And so here, until Shiloh come, tells us about the Shiloh who is truly man, will be truly man, and coming out of the heart of the covenant, that he already exists. In other words, he is true and eternal God. And there is the wonder of the coming of Shiloh that you and I commemorate this time of the year.
that the one who came in the flesh of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, is not a mere man, but God. Once again, we're pointed to the grace and the mercy of one God. And this is where the God of Christianity differs from every other so-called God. You go to a foreign country, a place maybe in which Hinduism or some other pagan religion is predominant, and you see the worshipers of that God going to the temple of that God, to the statues of that God, burning their money as a sacrifice to that God, praying and imploring him, there's one thing that idol of gold or silver or wood is simply unable to do. Hear, of course, and receive and speak. But even from the viewpoint of our text, especially, give peace. But Jehovah God can. The one against whom we have sinned, the one who, against whom, when we sin, visited the iniquities and sins on us in creating and bestowing enmity and disruption of fellowship, says to you and to me, that's not the last word. For some humans, that is the last word. There never will be peace and fellowship again. But the one only true God sends his only begotten son into our flesh for a purpose of taking some, a specific predetermined number of sinners and saying, I'll receive them back into fellowship with myself. So earlier I asked you, did you bow before this Shiloh? But now the question is, are you not absolutely astounded at what this God did to make your salvation possible? This is the wonder of Christmas. The appearing of Jesus Christ by the Virgin Mary. How many years after Jacob's prophecy was it that Christ came? And the answer is more than 2,000, or at least, at least about 2,000. And you say to yourself, that's a third of the history of the world. Did the people of God forget? course they did. That's what explains so much of the sad history of unbelief and ungodliness among Israel. But did Jehovah forget? Not for one split second. And it will be a Zechariah who sings of that in Luke 1. He hath remembered his mercy. Now, 
if Jacob spoke this to encourage the Israelites as they were about to enter a dark period of their history, and if it's a word that kindled the hope of the people of God in the Old Testament in other dark periods, such as the Babylonian captivity or the intertestamentary period, then remember this, brother and sister who live late in the New Testament dispensation, the Shiloh yet exists. He sits now at God's right hand and carries out the work of peacemaking, ruling, and law-giving, and he will come yet again. He has not forgotten to make us enjoy sinlessly and without any interruption the peace and harmony for which he was sent to accomplish at the first. In other words, the purpose of God in sending Shiloh is to save. It's to save in the way of bestowing on us every spiritual blessing imaginable and every gift and grace that is part of covenant fellowship with Jehovah God. But the text, as it speaks of God's saving purpose, says something else. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Three things about that part of the text. In the first place, what it's doing is saying that the promise and purpose of God is not just to save Israel, but to save Gentiles, the people, literally the peoples. Unto him shall the gathering not just of the twelve tribes be, but unto him shall the gathering of peoples from every nation, tribe, and tongue of the earth be. In the second place, that no matter in which country, language, or tribe you find people, what unites those who are gathered is this Jesus Christ. Different in culture different in skin color, different in the language we speak, but all one in Jesus Christ. And that unity in Jesus Christ is not just a unity of outwardly saying, well, I'm not a Hindu anymore, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm a Christian, but is one of serving Jesus Christ. And therefore, in the third place, implied not explicitly stated, but implied and certainly warranted in light of the rest of Scripture, the gathering of the people unto him is a gathering to him as their king to serve the risen Lord. This part of the prophecy finds fulfillment in the Old Testament only in the most shadowy of ways. Although, in the book of Genesis, in the salvation of Tamar, in Judges of Rahab, and in Ruth of Ruth. But in the death of Jesus Christ, especially this part of the prophecy finds fulfillment. For all that the Jews are looking for a Messiah, a Christ who will be their king, and although they're expecting him to make them again an independent earthly kingdom, 
and a great kingdom on earth. And though their rule will extend over the Gentiles, and perhaps some Gentiles will come in and enjoy the blessings that they enjoy in an earthly sense, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ does something far greater. Do you remember? Jesus must have had this text in mind in part, as well as others of the Old Testament, that at a feast late in the life of Jesus, two of his disciples came to him and said, Jesus, there are some Gentiles who are looking for you. He said, right now, that's not my concern. But when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. I am also a savior of the Gentiles. And that brings us to an aspect of the death of Christ on the cross that we don't always think of. The central reason, of course, why Jesus Christ must die on the cross is that he must die an accursed death. He must bear the wrath of God for sin, and the death of the cross did that. But at the same time, the death on the cross raised a man up off the earth. There was symbolism in that too. Society saying, we don't want you. And we're quite sure God doesn't either because we're going to suspend you somewhere between earth and heaven. You don't have a place either on earth or in heaven. And that was true when a man died on account of a sin he'd committed. But this Shiloh, when nailed to a cross, is not dying for his own sin. And it cannot be true that the only begotten Son of God, the well-beloved Son of God, the perfectly obedient Son of God, when the world says God must not want you, it cannot be true that God does not want him. Instead, God is saying he must die on a cross so that being lifted up from off the earth, all men can see him. Just the way another picture in the Old Testament. Moses Quickly make a brazen serpent. And don't run around through the camp showing it to people. Lift it up on a pole so all can look at it and be saved. Jesus Christ is lifted up on the cross so all men can see him as our unifying factor, as the banner of salvation. And now as the gospel is preached throughout the world, the means by which people of every nation, tribe, and tongue hear and are saved. This especially is proclaimed, that that Shiloh, having fully atoned for sin, and now not just raised up ten feet or so off the earth, but seated at the right hand of God, is the exalted Lord and Savior. Look to Him. He's our unifying, rallying point. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who unites people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And you know it. Because he's worked in your heart a true faith 
to turn from sin unto him, to find in him the complete atonement for sin, to recognize that though in you and me remains so much tendency, proneness by nature to disharmony and envy and jealousy and revenge and everything that would destroy the church, yet he has worked in us true saving we say, for his sake, God has taken our sins away and renewed us again. The question then becomes, how will you serve him? And especially this in the covenant, which is first to say in your own family and then in your own congregation and then more broadly, you work representing Shiloh for peace, not the peace of compromise, not the peace that joins to the world, but the peace that says, you have peace with God, you have peace with God, I have peace with God, therefore let there be peace amongst us. sending the Messiah, in working that peace, God is glorified. The prophecy we're considering is a prophecy that comes to Judah. And the word Judah means praised. But it isn't Judah who's going to get the praise for the fulfilling of this prophecy. Judah is distinguished from his other brothers, but the praise is God's. The glory is God's. And therefore the song on the part of the church of Jesus Christ tonight, the song of joy, the song of thanksgiving for redemption in the blood of Christ is a song of praise to Jehovah God whose kingdom is forever and ever and on whose behalf Shiloh rules today. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we pray that thou wilt receive our praise and glory. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Therefore, Father, God of grace and God of mercy, who has brought sinners such as we are into thy covenant, give us so to be thankful for the covenant blessings thou hast given us, that we serve thee willingly and work for peace and harmony in the church of Jesus Christ. For his sake, amen.